This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. Stay tuned for Trauma Code coming up. And while the program is on the air, please consider becoming a financial supporter to this radio station by calling 212-209-2950 or go to give to WBAI.org online. That's 212-209-2950 or go to give to the number 2 WBAI dot org online and what is it now it's one minute past 2 p.m stay tuned for trauma code coming up Trauma code to New York City, trauma code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI.
Welcome back to Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, live and in studio for Monday, July 10th. It's 2.04 p.m. with my lovely co-host. Dr. Cassandra Raphael. Hi, happy Monday, everybody. Uh, and that music that we just heard was uh, something of a holdover from the last show we did, if people were listening to our interview with, um, uh, what's her name? <laughs> Dalia Abdelmonim. The Sudanese journalist who brought us up to date on the war in Sudan and also gave us so many musical recommendations uh, that they held over. That one was Issam Sati with uh, Ali Nesraldim. Uh, and I only had the title in Arabic, so I can't even pronounce it, but definitely uh, looked that up, that Sudanese music. We have a little bit more later in the show. Um, and if you're interested in that topic and that music, please check out our last episode. And uh, we just uh, had the July 4th weekend recently. and. You know, our title is Trauma Code. We cover uh, a lot about uh, violence, the effects of violence and healing from violence. And, of course, July 4th weekend is often one of the most violent in the country. I think there was 17 mass shootings that weekend, um, including, you know, I'm from Baltimore. There was a mass shooting of 30 people at a Brooklyn Day event for the Brooklyn neighborhood of Baltimore. Uh, and the Baltimore Brew has really devastating reporting about the basic failure of the Baltimore Police Department or really Baltimore City to be present in any kind of meaningful public safety way. Um, and, you know, the a percent of the city's budget that goes to the police department and such a failure of uh, that public safety role of a sort of Baltimore uh, peacekeeping force, um, I think is, you know, an indictment in every institution is different. Um, but that's why I've kind of long called for considering abolishing the Baltimore Police Department entirely and replacing it with a peacekeeping, uh, you know, a peacemaking uh, force. But in any case, that's neither here nor there. We're going to have to cover that kind of idea sooner or later. But today we actually have uh, on the line, uh, working through some technical difficulties, um, a guest today, Dr. Katrina Gibson uh, from uh, Atlanta, who's going to talk about the role and the presence of police uh, in the hospital. Um, but before we do that, we're going to have uh, another musical break. Uh, the next song, Dr. Uh, Raphael, do you want to introduce it at all? The next song is going to be by Burna Boy. Um, oh, Burna Boy, who had such a wonderful concert, I'm told, anyway, at City Shield in Queens over the weekend. Um, apparently very well attended, as Burna Boy tends to draw a crowd and put on a show for a crowd. I'm told it was like a movie. So I, you know, I, I wanted to check it out. Things got in the way. But... You know, he, he, he never fails. So um, one of his, one of my favorite songs off of his most uh, recent records is called Roller Coaster featuring Jay Balvin. And um, the name of the record, I know it's like his birthday record. It's like Love Domini, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I, I think the next song we have is going to be Common Person. Oh, it's Common Person. Oh, I thought you were playing Roller Coaster. Okay. Well, Common Person. That's my other favorite song. <laughs> on on the uh, Burna Boy, Love Domini uh, record. So yeah, Reggie, can we can we get into that? So let's cue up that. I think the Afro beat is going to be kind of the theme of today's show. Also, as recommended by Afro Dr. Gibson. Af I, I, I'm being corrected by our our board Reggie, manager. Do, do you mind just Reggie just Johnson clarifying what the difference is for the good folks? Well, I mean, Afrobeat is the music that was created by uh, Femi Kuti and Tony Allen um, back in the 70s, which was a derivative of um, funk from America as well as uh, jazz fusion and other things. Afrobeats is the music that started back in the early aughts 
and it they do take elements of Afrobeat, but they also take elements of hip hop, also uh, EDM and other things like that. So it is kind of confusing to be saying Afrobeat and Afrobeats, but there is a distinction in sound between those two genres of music. Yeah, I think that it, it is an important distinction to make, and, and surely we are also fans of the Kuti music, uh, Fela, Fumi, all of them. Um, so why don't we bur- uh, cue up the Burna Boy? The Burna Boy. Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, and that was just, of course, uh, Burna Boy, as promised. Uh, and we have on the line, uh, calling from Atlanta, Dr. Katrina Gibson, uh, whose recent uh, piece in the Boston Globe was called Over Police Hospitals Are a Scary Place for the Traumatized or Undocumented. Uh, she's an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Emory uh, University School of Medicine. Uh, and uh, we have her on the line. Are you here with us, Dr. Gibson? I am here. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you for calling the Trauma Code, Dr. Gibson. And we, and we have you loud and clear. And, and I just introduced um, the, the title of uh, your piece recently in the Boston Globe. But before we get to that, um, 
I have, where I grew up, we it's often a curiosity of, of you know where you come from and. Uh, do you want to introduce a little bit about your background? And I always think of a fundamental piece of that is uh, where you went to high school. Sure. So I was born and raised in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I went to high school at Pioneer, Pioneer, Pioneer. So zero points for originality. But I think a lot of my experiences and the lens through which I practice medicine and pretty much live my life stems from the area from which I was raised, the demographics and the values in which my parents instilled in me. To give you a little idea, I'm sure some of you may be familiar with Ann Arbor, Michigan. It's home to the University of Michigan, where I received my uh, Master of Public Health. Uh, Pioneer High School was maybe about 7 to 10% Black, and not a lot of diversity, uh, which is maybe interesting juxtaposed in a town that even in the 90s growing up was kind of touted as as a liberal college town, but I think the term liberal is is relative. Um, however, I do distinctly remember always being the only or one of few black faces in the room. And of course that shaped me educationally growing up. And um, it also, uh, however, I was fortunate enough to be raised by parents within a community that made me feel as if I belonged. My voice mattered, my talents mattered, and I took that very seriously and made sure that um, I had a seat at tables in which I wasn't normally invited, and that I cleared a space for other people who looked like me. And so, you know, as I mentioned, the title was about kind of the role of police in the hospital. And, you know, I I work at a city hospital, so we both have um, New York City police that work and the hospital staff that we know and I don't think regularly are armed, and we also have NYPD coming and going, um, as well as other, you know, I think probably other Department of Mental Health, but other various agencies in the hospital. What, uh, what, uh, you know, uh, what was the reason that you decided to write about this topic? So I work at Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. It is the fourth busiest emergency department in the country, as well as, I believe, number one in the nation for blunt trauma activations. So police presence, security guard presence is is the norm. And um, I think that within certain communities, police violence has been part of the vernacular for decades since the beginning of the police force. However, I don't think that uh, police violence, gun violence, and the idea that it actually is um, a public health issue really entered the the norm into in 2020 with the George Floyd killing. Um, we, uh, when I say we specifically, I mean um, the, my profession as an emergency medicine physician. We started talking about these things in the in the context of gun violence and safety and police violence against its citizens as a public health issue. And uh, I decided to use my voice as a, a public voices fellow, as a member of the op-ed project, to, to write about this issue. This is something that I encounter on each of my shifts in the hospital. We cover uh, detention patients, and that so that means patients who are freshly arrested or people have already been convict, convicted of uh, crimes or in prison. These people have chronic and are acute health issues just like everyone else. However, the manner in which they receive their care and interface with the, the police can affect how they receive their care. And I think it's important that we talk about this issue, not just as a workplace violence issue, but as a gun violence and reform issue, and as well as a police reform issue. Right. You're making so many very good points and, and agree with all. Um, you may know I'm a, I'm a child psychiatrist, but obviously mm-hmm. I had to do adult psychiatry training 
in order to become a child psychiatrist before I could do the child work. Um, and I remember one of the training sites when I was a resident, I, I walked in City Hospital um, and there, and it, with a whole building dedicated to psychiatry, behavioral health, mental health, and um, and also in you know in New York City, serving a predominantly a community hospital, serving predominantly marginalized folks, uh, immigrant populations, people of color. And um, I remember walking in one day and seeing uh, ICE, the what is it, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. That's right. Folks mm-hmm. standing in the lobby, and I was like, "Oh my goodness, the patients are not coming." Like <laughs> I just knew, you know, I was very, you know, it was a little bit unsettling for me because here I am, you know, trying already to compete with the stigma of mental illness, competing with the stigma of treatment for mental illness, uh, and, and particularly in undocumented folks who oftentimes present with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, depressive disorders, and a lot of like clinical level anxiety because of you know their undocumented status in this country and, and who they might run into. I'm competing with all of that. And, and to find those folks standing in the lobby, I was really, I was like, okay, th- th- this, I'm gonna need a different technique. I'm gonna have to make some outreach calls because I wanna make sure that my, 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 my patients can come in and still feel like it is a safe place. Um, you know, they might have had some business there. You know, I don't know what they were there for specifically, but I know that in general, it can be uh, anxiety inducing for anybody walking dangerous, by. Really. Dangerous, or yeah, or anxiety inducing for anybody that's walking by. Um, one of the things, Dr. Gibson, that you mentioned in the article, actually, you give kind of points of, of advice um, for practically everyone who, who's participating in the system. And one of the things that you say is that the public needs to understand their own rights to privacy in the ED, uh, or even if they find themselves in police custody or other kind of precarious situations. So we have a little bit of a public ear here. Is there anything generalizable? I know you're in Atlanta, we're in New York, but is there anything generalizable that folks like listening in should know about what their rights to privacy are in an ED? No, I think that's an excellent point. Um, while there are certain um, things that can be done at the local level, there are also things that should be done at the national and federal level to protect people, citizens, whether they be in custody or not, when they receive health care in the emergency department. Because I think that we can all agree that the access to health care is not just, it's a human right. So I think it's important that um, patients understand that when they come to the emergency department, they're not in custody, that, you know, it is the police don't have the right to ask them or their physicians or their nurses why they're why they're seeking care, what the mm-hmm. results of their tests are. Um, you know, can they be asked um, additional ident- identifying uh, information? And this particularly applies to to uh, patients who are, are not in custody. I mean, just the sheer uh, vis- the visuals of seeing um, police officers or ICE, depending upon where you are in the country, can dissuade people from receiving even emergent or urgent care. So right. I think it's important to know that if you if you have warrants, if you are not here illegally, that you still have the right to receive emergent medical care in this country. Um, your it is not the responsibility of your nurses, physicians, or other emergent uh, care providers to um, provide documentation to law enforcement to help identify you and or your status. As a matter of fact, here um, at Grady, you know we are we have um, we have a relationship with our legal department where, if anything, we're you know attempting to just like we might um, attempt to help citizens who are on domicile and are homeless. We also want to help. Um, 
uh, immigrants receive paperwork so that they can, you know, integrate into society um, as they're often, you know, contributing to our society in the form of the work that they do. And I think that it's important that in return that we keep them safe and protect them. And, uh, you know, obviously there is a history, a legacy of, of violence in this country, everywhere in this country, including in uh, hospitals and other places of medical care. Um, I think there was a mass shooting this year at a medical center. I know where I work. Uh, when I was still a child, one of the surgeons was murdered. Where I went to fellowship, one of the surgeons was murdered in the hospital. Um, so there's clearly a, a role for, for um, mm -hmm. you know, some kind of safety public measures. safety force, especially in an armed society uh, like the United States. Um, so do you want to talk at all about, you know, what is that role and, and how do we decide where the, you know, kind of where the line is? To be sure, emergency departments are dangerous places. As an emergency medicine physician, I think it's extremely important that I and my colleagues are able to come to work and take care of our patients without fear of violence from patients or visitors within the hospital. I am not making the argument that security and or law enforcement does not have a role. And as a matter of fact, about half of physicians and 70% of emergency uh, medicine uh, nurses report some sort of physical assaults on the job. And that, that's devastating. There, what other specialty, with the exception of uh, law enforcement or, or you know, security, would you think that you should be come to your job and run the risk of some sort of physical, verbal, or emotional assault? So I think a lot of times when um, people um, make the argument about police reform, or you hear the term uh, "defund the police," the they try, attempt to draw the false dichotomy that the only alternative is to, to not have police at all. And I am not making that argument. I think that everyone, um, including patients, have the right to uh, be safe in the hospital. So what, what does that mean? Um, I think that uh, it's important that we delineate between police officers versus security guards in the hospital, uh, for starters. For instance, 35% um, of security officers are uniformed police in public hospitals. And these public hospitals, like the ones that you and I work in, are serviced by, or that's mostly where people of color, black people receive their care, whereas opposed to 18% of private hospitals, where uh, most of the patients tend to be white, are taken care of and are secured by security officers. And I think that that's, an, that's important. Um, as far as ramifications and access to guns and the likelihood that they may engage in certain activities when interacting um, with, with their patients. So I think that it's important to kind of take a look and compare the um, outcomes for hospitals that are secured by police officers versus security guards and understand that when um, these officers our law enforcement agents are within the hospital, they're taking care of a very specific and vulnerable population. And these patients are vulnerable not just because of maybe their racial or socioeconomic status, but they may be in a, in a physical and or mental state where they cannot protect themselves or advocate for themselves. So while police and their law enforcement presence is necessary for the safety of all of us who use the hospital, whether as patients, visitors, or care providers, but it's important that they receive special training in order to keep all of its individuals safe, taking into consideration the vulnerable status of a lot of its uh, a lot of the uh, uh, constituents. You're bringing up a very well, an excellent point. Um, also, at a time when DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives are kind of under attack, but that's the kind of training that. Um, 
people who work in these community hospitals might might benefit from, and specifically police, right? Because as you mm-hmm. know, there's a certain a certain history um, of the police with various communities, and very specifically the black community as well, um, where uh, you know, the relationship can be somewhat tenuous. Right. So Mm -hmm. if we don't feel like we have an understanding or that we're in a safe place, what's the likeliness that, you know, black people are going to go to the ED with emergencies when that's when they need to be? You know, they already have so many uh, not not they should say there are already so many, um, you know, questionable moments in in, in Western medicine. You, You mentioned the Tuskegee study in the in the in the article. Um that and moments like that, Henrietta Lacks and, and, and uh, you know, health inequities and all those things that are kind of perpetuated by the system as it is already kind of get in the way. And so it, you're, again, compounding by adding a, a stressful relationship with, with the police for many of the folks who need emergency services. And for folks uh, who oftentimes, as an ED physician, you'll know, don't go to the doctor very often and may not have an assigned primary care provider, but rather go to the ED when something happens, you know, that Mm -hmm. kind of also increases the likeliness that they avoid care. Right. You raise, you raise a very important point. The black community has a history of mistrust in not only uh, the healthcare system as well as with the legal system. And a lot of times um, we attempt to, you know, gaslight members of this community. Um, but these are very real uh, concerns and studies show this. I mean, uh, in the, in my uh, article, yes, I did a reference on um, Tuskegee syphilis, uh, the uh, syphilis study. And a lot of people will dismiss that as if that was years ago. And if it doesn't um, impact real health outcomes for real people. And of course, we know that that is not true. Additional examples include the uh, the, just the inequities between um, Black maternal morbidity and mortality rates. Mm-hmm. For example, Black women are three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than white women. And some of uh, the examples that are in the media have been of um, Olympian Tori Bowie, mm-hmm. who lost her life at eight months of pregnancy, and Serena Williams, uh, she shares with us uh, her her um, experience while giving birth. And these are extreme uh, examples, but I mean, if uh, your socioeconomic status and fame cannot save you from the health inequities that race brings into the picture. So uh, when you compound this with the, the, with the very real mistrust that, of, um, of the of law enforcement that Black people have, this is going to result in more preventable deaths, more inequitable health care outcomes if people feel as if their, their health care is going to be interrupted by by law enforcement. And in addition to just uh, maybe being over-policed and or possibly illegal search and seizures, people have died in the hospital as a result of law enforcement. My article, I referenced um, a gentleman by the name of uh, Alan Peen. He, he survived his injuries, thankfully, but he was shot in the chest in 2015 by off-duty officers who were working as security guards in a hospital in Houston. And it took years for him to receive any type of monetary justice. And I think it's also important to notice that um, Alan Peen wasn't sure your, your average, you know, uh, emergency department uh, patient, just as far as the extent of them. Um, he had resources. He, he came from an affluent family. Both of his, his uh, brothers, as well as his father, were either physicians and or physicians in training. And so I, and I use these examples just because to, uh, I think it's important to highlight that 
uh, race and is, is uh, a social construct is so um, intertwined into our society that you cannot educate yourself out of uh, racism and its resulting health inequities. You cannot finance yourself out of the health inequities that result um, as, as, a, as a factor of race. So these are things that impact all people of color, regardless of their socioeconomic status and fame, and real uh, studies show that you know black people receive different care when interacting with the healthcare system, as well as have very different healthcare outcomes when, or outcomes in general, when dealing with law enforcement in this country. Indeed. And uh, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Trauma Code on WBAI, and we have on the line Dr. Katrina Gibson talking about some of her uh, recent work on uh, the role of police and law enforcement uh, in the hospitals and healthcare centers. And both of you had uh, just talked about mistrust or distrust of a lot of the communities we work in of both the police and the hospital. And one thing that um, jumped out at me as I was reading your article is that, you know, as a trauma surgeon, uh, there's a way in which violence, particularly gun violence, initiates a law enforcement response, you know, with the spot shotter technology, even before the uh, healthcare, you know, paramedic emergency responders, the police may get an indication that a shooting has occurred. Um, and so there's a way in which that police uh, NYPD, right in our case, not the hospital um, security staff, enter into our um, the emergency department in the areas where we care for patients in response uh, to shootings. And, you know, one thing that, you know, I've taken care of patients who were in shootouts and had, you know, committed horrible acts of violence. Obviously, there's a role for police in, in that person's future when they get to the hospital. But I've also taken care of many patients who are cuffed um, by the police, for example, because of an outstanding warrant, that has nothing to do with uh, the, the the events that brought the the patient to the hospital. And there's a way in which seeing a patient with cuffs on also gives the staff of the hospital distrust of the patient. Mm -hmm, right. And I think really, will you know, we talk about inequity in care and, and can really impact how uh, our whole system cares for patients. Um, you know, being tainted by the way that the law enforcement treats the patient. I think that's an excellent point. Um, in addition to the implicit bias that police officers hold, it would be naive of us not to acknowledge that implicit bias exists amongst physicians as well, because at the Absolutely. end of the day, we are all just people. So just as a cuff can um, cause us to treat a patient differently, the uh, assumption that they're violent or going to be rude or disrespectful uh, can enter into the physician-patient interaction. Similarly, um, black patients are more likely to have safety alerts placed in their, um, in their emergency medical records relative to non-black patients for the same type of behavior. And unless you are being extremely proactive in that moment of patient care, that is going to affect how you take care of that patient. Maybe you won't extend to them the same amount of empathy. Maybe they won't receive the same amount of pain control. And of course, there's objective evidence as well that shows that black patients do not receive the same same type of, uh, of pain control for the same types of injuries when compared to their to their white counterparts. So implicit bias uh, training and uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion—all of the things that are under attack—that are that affect not only admissions to you know prestigious universities, but it also affects the training that people receive for uh, for jobs in both the uh, public and private sector. And as a result. The outcome of this is going to be inequitable deaths, 
and inequitable morbidity and mortality for vulnerable patients. Um, you also mentioned that, um, you know, um, specifically focusing on police officers outside of the hospital. I think this also enters into the uh, the question because we're talking about the larger picture of not just emergency department violence, but police reform. I think it's important that we also focus on police alternatives. For instance, as of today, was it July 10th? We're just over half of the year. The police have killed 527 people in this country this year alone. There have only been 11 calendar days this year where the police did not kill anyone. So we have to ask ourselves how many of these deaths could have been present, could have been prevented and by whom and at what stage? Uh, for instance, you know, a lot of uh, mental health outbursts and um, difficulties are handled by the police when maybe they don't need to be. Um, perhaps there should be other 911 alternatives. I talk about it in some of my articles as well, too, because simply by decreasing the interface between uh, police and citizens, particularly when it is unnecessary, is going to decrease the likelihood that that interaction could result in some sort of death and or unnecessary violence. And, you know, some of the, the, the sentences in your piece jump out at me, I guess, because of my role. But what I sort of took as almost the thesis of, of your paper uh, is that uh, I think it says hospital administration uh, must develop clear and communicate clear protocols for interacting with the police, uh, for patients in custody, security guards, and, and health care workers. Um, is, how common is that to have a clear, uh, you know, protocol and guidelines that staff can refer to um, in interactions with uh, police and law enforcement and ICE and anybody else? Well, based on my personal experience, my anecdotal experience, as well as the research that I've done, it's not very clear at all. Um, for instance, uh, we all use different um, uh, electronic medical records that have different capabilities. But if you were to take a random sampling of most of your colleagues, I, very few of them would know what their role and or their responsibility is when taking care of uh, patients who are in custody. For instance, um, a couple of months ago, I took care of a patient uh, who was brought in by police because he had allegedly swallowed a razor blade. And they wanted us to know, to, to kind of determine whether or not that was true. And when I stepped out of the room, as a nurse told me that he produced said uh, razor blade, regurgitated it, and then he says that he uses it for, for protection and then swallowed the razor blade again. So the only uh, the only resource that I had at the time was calling our uh, hospital ethics uh, or door our um, on call administrator and said, "Well, what am I supposed to do about this? This uh, this uh, patient is not suicidal. He's not you know actively um, homicidal, and is upfront about the purpose of him swallowing this blade." And I was told that you know that it is not our job to secure the jail. It is, however, um, our responsibility to say, yes, he has a honest person, in which I verified he was otherwise clinically stable. And then at that point, um, I discharged him. Now, if we're maybe, you know, the circumstances uh, were, were different or if I'd been, you know, a different provider, uh, some people may have taken, you know, extreme and or invasive measures to to retrieve this uh, this foreign object off this person's, uh, off the, off the uh, patient's person. And it is not our responsibility to do that. Other things uh, that come up as far as being legal and or ethical issues if someone has um, illegal contraband on their person. What is my role as the uh, response, as the physician to help law enforcement provide or retrieve that contraband? And I think that there's, even within my own um, hospital, there are 
I don't think that um, people know what what that means and what that what that uh, responsibility is. And it can often require a long, complicated phone call. And if you're in the middle of a busy shift in the emergency department, the likelihood of somebody having the bandwidth under the opportunity, even if their intentions are pure, is pretty low. So I think it's definitely um, important to just where it's, um, I should be able to see what allergies a patient has, who their emergency contacts are. There needs to be a button in your electronic medical record that gives some sort of guidance on what your role is as a physician, provider, um, healthcare worker in the emergency department or the hospital to um, help provide um, evidence for the police and or information in the police. And I think that uh, information is also often far more limited than people assume. I think we're about to take a, a little musical break, a little more Afro beats. Uh, anything else you want to say about this topic before we pivot at all? I think that um, regardless of your, your role as a patient or as a, as a person, I think that um, one of the best things that you can do is start to advocate on your on your behalf and identify your professional organizations, your community organizations, that are, so that you can learn uh, more about this. Um, and the first step I would say is maybe ASEP, our American College of Emergency Physicians, takes a strong, a strong uh, stance on this, as well as um, the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine Physicians. If you're a provider, you can start there. If you are not, Google it. Learn more, and we'll be back to talk about it. Excellent. I don't want to you to the waste my time. Till it's all over This life is a gift from the most danger That is why I'm thankful for all I have Cause the fast life really ain't all that So now I try to be pure No be like say I know this shit man I just get better in jail Waiting I see for this life plenty I keep on for my belly Pero la vida me protege de las malas A veces creo que yo soy la hierba mala Porque no muero que me tire muchas balas Y que me duela para recordar que estoy vivo Que me la gozo pero también la he sufrido Que ni la fama ni la lana Calman el frío y la sonrisa de mi hijo Me quita el escalofrío De mis emociones, muchas palabras pero pocas las acciones Ya no vivo pendiente de las opiniones Ya me repara, solo quiero hacer canciones Welcome back to Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald in studio with the lovely Dr. Cassandra Raphael. And that, friends, was Roller Coaster by Burna Boy featuring Jay Balvin. Um, what was I going to say about that? So, yeah, awesome concert this weekend, I'm told. And, and also, I just wanted to shout out last week's guest, Dalia Abdelmonim, who uh, provided us the intro song 
this week, actually. Yeah. I, had, I had a little word-finding difficulty with her name earlier. But um, in any case, we also have on the line Dr. Katrina Gibson, who was just telling us about uh, her recent piece in the Boston Globe on the role uh, of police and security in hospitals and healthcare institutions. And even though it was published in Boston, the, the picture that accompanied it in the paper uh, was of, an, uh, I think, uh, New York Health and Hospitals Police at Elmhurst. So definitely very much ties in uh, to, to the experience of New Yorkers. You know, we invite Dr. Gibson to say anything more about uh, over-policing hospitals, but also... Um, I do want to make a little bit of time to discuss another article that in doing some research for today's show, I, I, I found that you'd written, Dr. Gibson, called Ending Affirmative Action Would Be Bad for Our Health. And that was written on April 26, 2023, and, and last week on June 29th, I think it was. Um, the Supreme Court, I guess, are now making affirmative action not a thing at Harvard and the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Um, and, and I guess you're saying that you kind of saw this coming and that that would be bad. And uh, I think many healthcare providers agree. Um, where should we start with this, Dr. Gibson? Well, thank you for reading uh, my piece in The Progressive. I'll have another one about affirmative action coming out in the Hill. I'll share with you all shortly. Yes, but, please do. Uh, <laughs> the, the idea of affirmative action has been around for centuries and, and decades. Um, however, it hasn't come under attack until people of color have been able to benefit from affirmative action. As a matter of fact, some of the biggest uh, opponents of affirmative action, white women, have benefited from it the most. We've also, of course, seen affirmative action um, at Harvard and other uh, other similar institutions at play as far as legacies, uh, those who have you know made significant uh, contributions. And um, so this topic has been something that has been near and dear to my heart um, since um, I was a, a high school student. I was asked to participate in the uh, Grass v. Bollinger cases when it was raised against the an affirmative action case against the University of Michigan. I was identified as a as a highly uh, a competitive student for the university with a vested interest in the preservation of uh, diversity. Uh, when I I eventually no longer participated in the case, as I, I ended up at. Uh, at Yale as an undergraduate, um, another prestigious university where people who look like me were often, you know, assumed to be um, some sort of a diversity admission and, and less competent because of the color of our skin. Hmm. However, um, if when we start, uh, if once some affirmative action is no longer available for use in, in admissions, I think we are going to see a decrease in the diversity of the pipeline for not just um, medicine, but for all fields. And as a result, we are going to see inequitable health outcomes even worsen for people of color. I've referenced this before, we've talked about this earlier, but black people, people of color, women, we receive better care from people who look like us. Um, and this isn't just about you know black people. And um, if you are not a person of color from a marginalized uh, group, you might ask yourself, well, what what does this have to do with me? Well, we are existing in a more and more diverse uh, country and world. And as our worlds collide, people who are educated with and are around people who do not look like them are placed in positions where they can take better care of people 
who do not look like them. We've seen these um, health inequities for decades. We're starting to talk about it more and more, particularly with inequitable deaths um, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But as we start to uh, lose affirmative action, diversity, equity, inclusion, and the curriculum and the training that it introduces to uh, not only just students, but uh, trainees, regardless of your field, we are going to see worsening health uh, outcomes and people will die. Right, right. I agree with all of that. And I think, um, you know, I've also mentioned on previous episodes that there was that JAMA article, uh, Journal of the American Medical Association, earlier this year that was showing that when there are more black physicians in the county, the health outcomes for everybody mm-hmm. in the county improves. Um, mm-hmm. and, and similarly here, to be a black physician and to be in charge of the team and to be the, the, the medical decision maker is is one thing, and that's very you know, that, that's a notable role, right? But even when it's not the lead on the team who is a person of color, diverse teams have better outcomes for health, financially. It's just like it, it works better for everybody if the team is mm-hmm. a broader, you know, is a broader group. Um, there was one more thing I wanted to, to, to say about that. But so anyway, there's data, right, that the diversity is helpful. And so for the, the listeners who are not so clear on on what we're talking about um, as it relates to affirmative action and and good health care. There's a little bit of a, well, I guess there's some pipeline programs, but also to be able to work in health care, it requires a lot of training for most people there. It requires, I mean, yeah, you probably completed high school or got a GED, went to college, um, at least that much, right? Oftentimes, or some kind of specialized training. Um, and so if that becomes off limits or, you know, uh, people from communities of color are just not actively pursued to be trained, that's how the outcomes get bad. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I, um, you mentioned uh, something about how, you know, a lot of times we can't always appeal to maybe the heartstrings of uh, certain people, but we live in a capitalist uh, society. So I think that if, if nothing else, money talks, but when these, that when we have diverse health, uh, health teams that improve health outcomes, this saves money, not just for people of color, for the hospitals, but for society in general. If you know your if your care providers are savvy enough to recognize certain social drivers of health that may negatively impact a person's care, that could result in a bounce back hospital admission that dings the hospital financially, or a patient that's more likely you know to end up in the emergency department, which is far more expensive than seeing that patient in an outpatient setting if they had access to medication. This all costs money. And right. as we know, the United States spends more money on health care than any other developed nation, about 18% of our um, national GDP, I believe now, yet our outcomes do not speak to that investment. And if we start to decrease affirmative action and taking into consideration a racial diversity, ethnic diversity, people with disabilities, et cetera, which is going to lead to less diversity in health care, uh, providers who are going to see worse outcomes, and this is going to cost us more and more money. Right, right. So I think also um, when reading up on this, I, I came across a clip from like CBS. Dr. David Scorton, he's the president and CEO of the Association of American Medical Colleges, which is basically the institution that oversees medical school admissions. And one of the things that, so he a- agrees with everything that we're talking about now, but also he says, you know, 
what 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 could we possibly do to continue to foster a diverse uh, healthcare environment? And one of the things to do is to recruit kids sooner, <laughs> like like literally kids, like you know middle schoolers, basically, um, in, in pipelines that kind of ensure that we can continue to make the healthcare workforce diverse in the absence of initiatives like affirmative action. And, and you know, I, neither of us, none of us are legal scholars, um, but uh, there are definitely uh, legal scholars who have written and, and argued, um, you know, effectively on this about how cynical this court is and even on this particular issue using the 14th Amendment, which was meant to uh, to kind of uh, give a little bit of advantage to us to, uh, inf- you know, freedmen and freed sl- uh, enslaved people, uh, using that to dismantle uh, those those kind of rights and those programs uh, for, uh, you know, for the community. I think Ellie Mistel uh, is one that's, that's written on this. And there's a lot we could say about the topic, but given your history and your uh, work on it, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to, to comment on it uh, in light of a recent history. I, I appreciate it. And I just like to say, regardless of uh, what's being done at the local level and or the federal level, as far as banning uh, DEI, affirmative action, et cetera, the work will always be done. It needs to be done. And there are going to be you know, physicians, um, you know, legal scholars, members of the community, community activists. We're always going to do the work, whether it's under the, the title of DEI or community engagement. So it's, it's going to be done. We're committed but um, I think that uh, this is just this most recent uh, SCOTUS decision is just the, the beginning. And, um, you know, last year, women woke up with fewer reproductive rights than we had than um, 50 years ago. So this is just the beginning. Um, I don't want to say the beginning of the end, because I think it's the beginning of the reawakening that we're realizing um, that, you know, uh, we're, we're all under we're all under attack. And, um, you know, we must preserve uh, people's people's rights to to achieve education, health parity, and health equity. And um, preserving affirmative action has been one of the more effective ways that we've been able to do that. And, um, you know, you mentioned pipeline programs, and you don't wake up at, you know, in your 20s. And, and while people do change careers, but as you mentioned, these types of uh, journeys to, to medicine and other competitive fields begin at an extremely early age. And it's important that, you know, we provide people whose social determinants or drivers of health may be working against them, that we provide them with the opportunities to pursue education because education and health equity are forms of social justice. You said that. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so we're bumping up uh, towards the end of the hour. And uh, I did want to mention, as, as uh, uh, I almost forgot Dalia Abdomo's uh, name, um, but, uh, you know, at, at the end of every episode, I like to, to give our guests an opportunity to give us some kind of social recommendation, uh, you know, uh, music, book, movie, performance, or a work of art uh, to share with our audience. And last time, uh, uh, Dahlia uh, gave us as a recommendation to look up almost a homework assignment, uh, the, the um, f- uh, godfather of Sudanese jazz. Um, uh, I'm going to mispronounce his name if I don't have it in front of me. Um, oh, man. I, 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 uh, anyway, I'm going to get to that at the end. It's under these pile of papers. But I want to give you an opportunity. Uh, Sharhabil Hamed. Uh, sorry about that. And the song is going to be Argos Farfish that we're going to end up on. So while Reggie cues that up, uh, why don't you help us out um, with uh, some recommendations of your own for us and our audience? 
Sure. I take my uh, music recommendations extremely seriously, and these uh, recommendations were overwhelmingly Afrobeats, um, simply because I just came back from Afro Nation and Portugal. If you've never been, it's in, it's in June in Portugal every year ago. We talked about um, Burner Boy, but I also want to put your listeners on to Uncle Waffles. She is a Swazi-born DJ and a record producer. She's now based in South Africa. Check her out. Um, and in addition to um, uh, the Uncle Waffles, just let you uh, remind your listeners, Hip Hop Turns 50 this year. And I have to give you this uh, a book recommendations. Um, in January of next year, Dr. Uche Blackstaff's Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism and Medicine becomes available. You can reserve yours on Amazon. And the book that I plan to start this summer, I promise, is by um, Associate Professor of uh, Politics at Fordham, Professor Christina M. Greer, Black Ethics, uh, Ethnics, Race, Immigration, and the Pursuit of the American Dream. And she talks about... Um, it's kind of the, the racial experiences and identities of foreign-born Blacks in the United States. So add that, those things to your reading list, um, add those things to your playlist, and um, yeah, it's just uh, celebrate Black women, Black music, and the African diaspora. Certainly. So thank you for those recommendations. I will certainly look into uh, Dr. Dr. Christina Greer. Um, mm-hmm. And also, Dr. Uche Blackstock, yeah, her book is dropping in January. I kind of asked her to be on the show already, so we'll see if she <laughs> comes through with that. Um, very excited about that book. I think a lot of people are looking forward to that, and she's doing a lot of really wonderful work in the community. And I have to say, uh, Dr. Gibson, so are you. I've had the opportunity now to read a few of your articles, and you're really speaking up for the people, and we love that. Thank you. Um, we said nothing about us without us. So, um, you know, make sure that I'm trying to write to change the world and use whatever voice and platform that I'm offered to to um, to really close the gap in health inequities as well as further social justice. So I appreciate your having me on your show. Well, thanks again for joining us, Dr. Gibson. Thank and, you. And thanks for listening to Trauma Code out there. Transition on to the next show. Good afternoon. 